I'm not sure if I mentioned it before, but when my friend Clay Mason Bannerman and I want to impress our new lady friends, Tiffer and Mickey, we don't even have to take them to a restaurant. That's because we have an entire freezer stocked full of butcher box, and that includes high-quality meat and seafood that we can trust. It's so convenient. It's delivered right to our doorstep, and there's always free shipping. I mean, where else can you get free protein for a whole year? Tiffer and Mickey love it, and so will you. At least one of them is always around asking when the new ButcherBox is arriving. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash mega and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional 20 bucks off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash mega and use code mega to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus 20 bucks off your first order. Thanks, ButcherBox. Hey, listener, it's Zach Harper, Amin Hassan, and Anthony Mays of Cinephobe. You may be asking yourself, what is Cinephobe? Amin, would you like to fill in the people? Cinephobe is the podcast where Zach and I watch movies that are poorly rated on Rotten Tomatoes and try to ascertain. I'll try to well. ascertain? Yes. Okay. Ascertain. Whether or not they're accurately poorly rated, or maybe they didn't get a fair shake. Cinephobe, produced by this guy, Anthony Mays. Hey, that's me. I produced this show. I also watched the movies, even though that wasn't included in the description, and I also ascertained. <laughs> This month is... Wow! Oh, oh, Maze, why do you say that? Supercharge it. (laughs) So that this promo can remain evergreen. I feel like explaining a little bit more. In 60 seconds? I don't know. Maybe I don't bring attention to it. Assuring people like, look, if you listen, you're going to get it. Just give it give it time. That's a good promo. Just listen to it. Give it time. You'll figure it out. Is this the promo right now? Isn't it? Okay, I think we got it. Cinefo. Wherever you get podcasts. (laughs) Hey, everybody. I'm really excited to share a day episode with you today and also tell you that we have bonus episodes that are going to start to come out um, midweek. You can get those in their entirety by becoming a premium member. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just hit that subscribe button and you'll get lots and lots of bonus material and all sorts of perks and ad-free episodes. And of course, you can also join Patreon um, and get the same stuff and we really, really appreciate it. It really does mean the world to us. And a couple more quick fun things. We have a live show coming up in Los Angeles at Dynasty Typewriter on Friday, March 17th. Get your tickets now if you're going to be in LA. If you're not, you can also live stream it, I think for a couple days afterwards. So um, all of that is, all that info is at the link in our show notes. And lastly, it's very fun for me to announce that Greg and I were just on an episode of Comedy Bang Bang with one of our faves, David Cross. And it's a lot of fun. So um, check out the new Comedy Bang Bang. And so now we got a fresh, hot day episode coming straight at you, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, bye. Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional megachurch. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Labonte, and this is Mega, coming to you from Twin Hills Community Church. Um, uh, my mom, Hallie, and her co-host, Gray, they like to give our mega church a tiny family feel by introducing you to members of the church staff and community of Twin Hills. But um, I was thinking that maybe today, as I kind of hijacked the program, I, um, I 
it can expand um, that out to not just maybe be members of our church staff and church community, but maybe just um, people that are part of our human community. And um, I wanted to introduce you to someone that I found by just, I found him honestly, like online, he's on social media and he makes like really awesome YouTubes. And I found him on YouTube. And then that made me find his Friendly Atheist podcast. And um, I know that that's a bad word to a lot of people, but I'm trying to just um, like keep an open mind and um, maybe uh, uh, just like uh, Doubting Thomas made a profession out of asking good questions, uh, our guest today um, is, well, making a profession or a living or a, a livelihood or something out of um, asking really great questions. And so it's my pleasure to introduce to the program um, Mr. Hemant Mehta. And um, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing excellent. Thank you for having me. Oh, Hemant, I'm so excited because... Um, uh, I have a lot of questions for you, and I'm really glad that you responded to me online. And I really think that your podcast is awesome. It's called The Friendly Atheist, and I really highly recommend it to anyone. And I just wanted to ask you first and foremost, like, about how you feel about that word atheist. Like, is it a commitment once you kind of have a title or a definition that then people will respond to you by that definition? Like, and some people think that atheist is a really scary word or a dangerous word. And do you feel like it? Um, it causes any problems from jump with you with certain people or what's your emotional experience around that? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I feel like I don't really even use the word anymore to describe myself. It's something I fell into initially precisely because of what you said. It sounds scary to a lot of people. I figured uh, might as well face the stigma head on and try to show people that it's not scary. Uh, but if you ask if a random person got into a conversation with me about religion, I don't think I would lead off by saying atheist because I think it would probably shut down the conversation pretty quickly. Right, right, exactly. So, um, because do you feel like, uh, I don't know, maybe in the same way that like people who live in Alaska have more words for snow because yeah. <laughs> they have more nuanced experiences of it, like maybe, I don't know, I feel like I don't know how to describe myself because I'm always changing. Like, how, how would you describe yourself? Doesn't it take more words for the specific kind of snow that you are today or something? Yeah. And you know what? I've been around a lot of people who are non-religious and they use a variety of labels. And the people who do research into people who have deconstructed, lost their faith, however you want to describe it, even they have, I wouldn't say arguments or debates, but even they have very different ways of categorizing people because there are some people who just have doubts, and that's one thing. There are people who absolutely would say, I, I'm pretty pretty 99% sure God doesn't exist and I'm going to live my life accordingly, and people have different words for that. Um, there are a lot of people I've met who say, I don't like the word atheist because it is one answer to one question you know, do you believe in God? No. And that doesn't tell you anything about what I do believe. And there are better words that describe what I do believe in a positive way. So, you know, if you look at the spectrum of people who don't believe in God, there's a whole bunch of different ways, a whole bunch of ways to describe them, a whole bunch of different labels we use to describe ourselves, which is why it's almost futile to try to categorize or lump everyone into one uh, label. It just doesn't work. There are plenty of people I would think are atheists who just don't identify with that word. And they would say it doesn't really just tell you much about them at all. So it's kind of useless. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, 
I think describing it as snow is actually a really good way of putting it because it just depends who you're talking to, what the situation is. Um, and really, it's the question of when is a label useful is, does it tell you a lot about the person you're talking about? And the truth is, atheist doesn't tell you much about someone. And it's I always think about how it's describing yourself in relation to the thing that you're not. Right. Like, I don't I don't introduce myself as a non-Russian. Uh, right. You know what I mean? I'm because I'm an American, you know. So uh, what are your favorite labels? Because if you think about it, like a theist means no uh, deity or no God. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, yeah. I, yeah. So like, what are the things if if we're not interested in like, this is what I'm not like, what are you? What are your beliefs? Yeah, we don't have words for non stamp collectors. You're right. I mean, yeah. there are there are labels like humanist that can be defined by these are the aspects of humanity about the way I perceive the world that I do believe in. There used to be uh, years ago an attempt to categorize people as brights. Uh, that was an attempt uh, not to say if you're not bright, you're dim, but that if you're not bright, you're a super. Like, we're all positive for everybody. But again, the, the point is, how do you define yourself by what you are when the crux of that belief is, this is what I'm not, this is what I don't believe? And again, this is where you get into a lot of labels. Right. So yeah, you can be a secular humanist. You could be just a humanist. You could just be someone who doesn't believe in God, but has a whole bunch of other beliefs that do define you. So the irony of the atheist movement right now is that atheism it it doesn't really serve a useful purpose in terms of what you are what you believe what that means for the people under the label which is why like i still use the word yeah. for my podcast and youtube because i just feel like i've been stuck with the word for a long time but if you watch the videos i make if you listen to the stuff i talk about I, there's really very little focus on trying to get people to stop believing in God because it's just not the thing I'm passionate about. I don't do a lot of debates. I don't argue with people if they happen to be believers. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. It's not like you're trying to um, evangelize. <laughs> <laughs> evangelize yeah. atheism. Right. Right. It's just not the priority for me. It's not to say that stuff isn't important. I know a lot of people really enjoy hearing those debates and they've benefited from those conversations. I feel like it's much more valuable to know what people are doing with their beliefs. And there are plenty of religious allies who support, who probably overlap with my own values a lot. And there are plenty of atheists who hold views I find really despicable, too. So just saying, you know, oh, this other person's an atheist, we must get along really well, or we share a lot in common, that's not necessarily true, and it feels like every day that is becoming less and less true. Yeah, and I imagine that, like, there are genuinely lovely people who are Christian and genuinely lovely people who are atheists, and then there's probably, like, holes in both groups too yeah. exactly yeah so like okay so like some christians and religious people they have this belief that atheism is like ultimately unsatisfying or like mm -hmm. hopeless because it offers no like ultimate purpose or meaning to life like how would you how do you respond to that critique or what do you find like do you find anything like personally fulfilling or how do you and like how do you find meaning in life as an atheist I guess let me back up for a second. I mean, the the, the short answer is that's absolutely not true. And it, every time I hear a pastor or an evangelical or what have you say something like that, I mean, my, the first thought that goes through my head is you don't know anyone who's an atheist. You haven't thought about this. You're just running off of a stereotype. 
because uh, it's not true. But more specifically, I mean, I think pretty much every believer would tell you they've had doubts at some point yeah. in their faith journey. Yeah. That's, I mean, I don't even think that's a controversial thing to say in very devout circles. Yeah. And what is atheism? It's basically following those doubts where they lead you. Um, and the thing is, if people have questions about their faith, if they have religious doubts, I don't think we would say, well, that person's lost their purpose. They must be really depressed. <laughs> they must be uh, totally screwed over in the journey of life. No, they just had a question. Everything else stayed the same. They're just trying to figure something out that they never really thought about before. And what is atheism? It's those people who just keep asking those questions, who realize that, you know what? I thought I had the answer. I think the answer is something different. But fundamentally, nothing has changed about what gives you meaning in life, what brings purpose in life. Because, I mean, I think simple answers. Most people would tell you, I live for my family. I have some passion in life. I do volunteer work. I help other people. That brings me joy. It fulfills me in some meaningful way. That is true whether you are religious or not. And that doesn't change just because you're you know, the answer you give to the God question changes. It doesn't change what brings you meaning and value and purpose in your life. Yeah. I mean, the idea that if you are religious, the only purpose you have is like what comes after you die. That's never really been the driving force, even for religious people. And I know that based on their actions. Like, no, they, they have other things that keep them passionate, that they are passionate about whether or not I agree with them. But they're always driven by something or another. And that is true of everybody. Yeah. And I feel like it's a deficit. It's coming from a place of deficit of like, I'm not enough. I'm bad. I'm probably wrong about this, especially because like it's based on a redemptive model of like the the given is that there is something about me that needs to be redeemed and it has to come from something outside myself and stuff. And sometimes I think that's kind of like an easy, it's like a, like how nice <laughs> that you have this system that gives you all the answers and then like places all the authority in someone else's hands. And you're like, sure. Hey, it's the, the authority of the Bible. It's not me. I'm just, and yet you're giving all of your power and agency over to the authority of this thing, assuming that like your own experience of this human existence wouldn't be enough. Like sometimes I think if you just, I don't know, stop in the moment you're in and allow yourself to look around. Like there are things about this planet that are so just God awe inspiring that like, I'm like, Oh wow. It's enough to just be like, I get this opportunity to be alive and there's a finitude to that. And just the finitude to me gives it enough meaning of like, I'm here now and there's going to come a time when I'm not here. And, and like, for me, like, I think that's enough besides the fact that I'm just going to like, maybe this is too personal, but I've never really been a fan of any of the images I've been given of the afterlife and of mm. heaven. I'm like, Oh my God, it sounds like church. And I've never been a big fan of that in terms of like, if I had my choice of how to hang out, like I, it wouldn't be at church or even really with any of those people. But, um, I don't know. I think like, I, 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 like you've probably heard of like Pascal's wager, right? Yeah. Like sometimes I think about Pascal's wager, like it's almost like, um, emotionally manipulative. Like it's still dangling the idea, like, okay, but just in case there's a hell, just in case. And it's like, 
um, okay, so just in case there's a hell, I'm going to devote my life to an authoritative deity that, uh, that demands nothing less than actual worship, blind devotion, you know, all that stuff. And that's the thing about Pascal's Wager. The blind devotion seems like something God should be able to see through. And you're not just playing it safe. You are giving time. You are giving money. You are, I mean, if you're wrong, you're really screwed. Um, but I, you mentioned something that was interesting, which is, you know, the idea of redemption, the re idea that, you know, there is this afterlife that does bring people a lot of comfort. And listen, right now, I more than any other time, I think there is definitely value to feeling like everything's going to be okay and that comfort exists. But the thing about the belief I often hear from the religious side about atheists is that they must, because they don't have that, because they don't believe in that, they must lack joy, meaning, purpose. And like you said, there are plenty of things I could point to that give atheists meaning and purpose and that feeling of awe that doesn't necessarily come from God, the Bible, or church. I mean, like you said, learning about the universe, yeah. the, the pictures that came from that, uh, web uh, telescope. the telescope. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And if you think deeply about that, there are plenty of people who could say that brings you the sort of awe and your place in the world in a way that you never got in another place. There, for some people, it might be listening to a really moving piece of music, reading, uh, experiencing some type of art. All of that is true. It, whatever works for you works for you. So I don't want to begrudge people uh, their beliefs, even if I think they're wrong, because it provides them that sense of comfort. But to pretend that that is the only way everyone else yeah. can have that comfort makes no sense whatsoever. of the word comfort um because my personal suspicion is that so much of this is fear-based so much of the religious experience is not just acquiescing to the idea that you are fundamentally deserving of a very real hell and eternal torture because of the very nature of you having been born mm -hmm. um you know it's that's called not... the religion of love <laughs> well, yeah like so like, okay, so let's say in your emotional experience and as a human, you, you have a brain that is always uh, seeking comfort and and survival, right? And so like for you personally, like when you're laying alone in bed at night and you can't sleep um, and like the fears come crashing down on you, if you don't have a God figure or a belief system in place maybe you do have a belief system in place so i don't want to assume but like without the idea of like i guess i don't know if it's like a transference like an emotional transference or a spiritual bypassing we do of being like well god has got it and jesus is going to save us like if you are in a emotional or personal position of like hey no one is coming to save us <laughs> and and we don't know what happens after we die like where do you find comfort when you're alone at night and the fears come crashing down I, maybe transference was the right word knowing that there isn't some higher power that's going to swoop in and maybe make things better it means your first resort is trying to see i mean what plotting out what the plans are what if plan a is not working what is plan b who are the people who could fix this it's really like methodically going through what can i do to alleviate this fear 
And listen, there are there are some really bad things that people experience. Sometimes they're understanding and accepting the fact that something bad happened and it's not going to get better. Just being able to accept that is is one path toward dealing with it, right? Whatever the five stages are of grief. Like, but thinking, I don't know how it would be useful to say, well, I'm going through something rough. I'm really scared of what's going to come. I'm just going to hope God swoops in, takes care of it in some way. To me, that's just not a helpful way of thinking about a thing. You know, if someone I know is sick or I'm going through something rough, the thing I want to figure out is, is there anything that is within my control that I can do about it? And if there isn't, what can I do to make sure I'll be okay, the people around me are going to be okay? Those those are comforting ways to handle a situation. I would argue that's a more responsible way of dealing with that situation because putting it in someone else's hand is more or less like passing the buck. It's like at some point, someone's got to take responsibility for what they can control instead of just hoping something else just takes care of it on its own. So again, I do get the value some people might have because there's a lot that's out of our control. And you want to be able to say, someone's in charge of this. Someone can change it if they choose to. And if they don't change it, it's part of some master plan. There is value. I, I do get the emotional satisfaction of that. I just don't find it honest. And to me, it makes a lot more sense. And it definitely eases my fear and helps me maintain some sanity to know that, okay, there are some things I can't control. Here's what I can control. Here's what I can do about some of these things. And, you know, if, again, when you can address any problem in that way, I feel like you got a better chance of making sure it goes in a in a good direction. Yeah, that makes that's yeah. It, it's almost like um, I, I feel like what you're saying is um, it, it, it's funny. It's kind of what I feel like a lot of Christians say, which is that like faith without works is dead or whatever. But then, so it, it seems like it, faith should be about action. But what I see so many of the Christians in my life doing is sort of like treating faith like it's a car. And, um, like what you should do is get in that car and go like, take care of people, you know, have a better human experience, like use it to get you somewhere when really what we end up doing is just walking around and kicking the tires and arguing with each other about the mechanics of how a car works instead <laughs> of just like driving it to, um, you know, get food for yourself or share food with someone else or to go visit someone or whatever. But like, um, right. If we're judging, if we're judging Christianity by Christians, uh, the whole faith is screwed, right? That's really interesting. Yeah. Say more about that. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing that I feel like is a better focus for me personally, which is less debating, less trying to get people to stop believing in God, which I feel like you can always plant seeds, but it's going to come in their own time versus saying, look, if the argument for religion, if the argument for a specific brand of Christianity is that it makes you a better person because it provides you this set of values and morals and we'd all be better off if we follow that stuff. Like I have been able to maintain a career for like, I don't know how many years now. I feel old saying that, but what have I been able to do? It's mostly pointing out where things have gone wrong because we listen to people who did some action because of their beliefs, whether it's politicians saying, you know, I'm a Christian politician, by the way, let's hurt LGBTQ people. Let's take away fundamental human rights. Right, exactly. And it's like all I, I've been able to 
just point people in that direction and say, well, this is someone who was led by faith. Here's what they did. Here's how it hurt people. And the response, by and large, not just from atheists, by the way, is to say, well, of course that person is wrong or doing something evil or cruel, um, but they always defend it. And they're always like, well, that person's a bad Christian or that person's not really following the lessons of Jesus or anything like that. And it's like, how many of these stories do I have to tell you before you realize that these are not just bad apples, like one after another? At some point, I've picked apart the entire orchard and nothing has changed here. And it's not to say that Christianity is, that doesn't prove Christianity is wrong. It is not saying Christians are all bad. It's just saying, look, you, if you want to pretend that this set of beliefs and values leads you in a good direction, well, I have mountains and mountains of evidence showing that never seems to happen. Um, and yes, there are plenty of stories of Christians doing really wonderful things inspired by their faith. But the point is, like, there is no one set solution. Good people can be good. Bad people can be bad. And if you want to have some philosophical debate about what those words mean, I feel like that's a separate conversation. But I mean, this is kind of what my focus has been. It's just, I feel like I make videos and I talk about things on my podcast with the hopes that religious people who listen to what I say would walk away saying, I agree with everything you said, whether or not I believe in God. Because yeah, the the problem with what that person did was wrong. The argument about the tires on the car, uh, that is not helping anybody. But I saw where they drove that car to, and I'm not a fan of that. And I feel like more and more religious people, whether or not they became atheists later on, I feel like that's why I've been able to sustain a career doing this, because a lot of people would agree with a lot of those criticisms, with a lot of those problems that are going on on the other side, and they're frustrated by it. And like, I would encourage the believers, good, go to your church, make sure you're not doing that. Make sure you are protecting the vulnerable. Make sure you are helping people. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, because it does, as you're talking, I'm like, oh yeah, people are me too kind of at the same a percentage in the Christian world as in the secular world, sure. as in the political world, as in the like corporate mm -hmm. world. It's like, like those are systemic problems that happen anywhere. And just cause you, some institution claims a mantle of morality, uh, just because they happen to say we are led by God. It doesn't mean they are, uh, immune from all that stuff. If anything, as we've seen over the past several years, and it's not like just the Catholic Church, we've seen it with Southern Baptists, we've seen it in evangelical institutions, like those problems not only exist, but they're actually made worse in a lot of ways because there's so much uh, denial, there's so much cover up going on because you don't want the outside world realizing you have the same problems as the outside world. Um, and so the one thing that gives me some hope is I've seen a lot of members of those churches and a lot of believers, if not members of those churches, speak out against that and say, this problem exists in my religious institution. I'm sick of it. I'm calling it out. I'm speaking to the press about it. I'm not going to let it just uh, disappear in order to protect or shield my faith. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I've been in therapy before and um I'm I'm actually I'm in therapy right now actually and to be honest and um like one thing that I've come to understand about the th the uh dynamic of being in therapy is that well my understanding is that sometimes you walk in there and you kind of like start talking about your stuff and the therapist might know from the very first session with you the therapist might know like oh okay 
you have um, anxious attachment issues and, you know, they might know right away, but they're not going to tell you that because it wouldn't be effective for you to just receive that information intellectually if you can't really synthesize it or integrate it or whatever. So the therapist has to sit there for a whole year listening to you until you (laughs) come to the thing going like, oh, I might have anxious attachment and that means, or I'm codependent or whatever. And then, then you have to become, okay, so now I've sort of come to a place myself where I understand I am codependent and I behave in the following ways. And so because of that, then you kind of go through a like shame period of like, oh, all these things I thought I was proud of that I thought were personality, like leadership skills or whatever. I'm like, oh, I'm just trying to control everybody. Mm. And then so there's an amount of like there's an emotional experience you have that then can feel like a little bit of like shame or anger or like, oh, as you reorient yourself again, back to what we started talking about today, to these new like labels or ways of understanding it, then you have to educate yourself. Then you have to like, once you educate yourself, then you have to, and, and, and change is so hard. And so maybe I guess what I'm saying is that like, we can't, maybe these debates and like arguments for our sides or our points of view or whatever are really ineffective in terms of being able to like sway each other at all, because we have to kind of, it's very personal and we have to come to it. And I think maybe like there's a lot of like Christian guilt and it, you, it can easily be like, well, I wasn't alive during the crusades. I didn't kill a million people or whatever. <laughs> like Christianity has changed and now we're new Testament Christians or whatever. Right. Right. But when you have people Talk say to some gay people, they'll, you know what I mean? Like they'll tell you what is happening right now at the hands of the very same people. But the thing you said about the debates and all that stuff, you're right. I don't think there's anything I could say. There's no slam dunk argument that's going to get someone to stop believing in God like in an instant. And yet, I don't think I've ever seen a shortage of religious people who think, well, if you just get my little email here, or you hear this Bible verse, or you hear this one argument, you will change whatever it is your life has been thinking about for many years. Like, buddy, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) Why do you think this is convincing to anybody? Um, And yet I still get those messages. I still get those you know, hey, someone slid into my DMs. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> I always think about the book of Romans uh, says that faith is a gift from God. So like if if someone doesn't have a lot of faith or has zero faith, uh, according to your book, like that's on God. Right, right. <laughs> like, but I do think, too, that like there's a fear behind maybe a Christian's defensiveness because of the um shame that will come from the knowledge of yeah like yeah if you if you talk to somebody from maybe from the lgbtqia plus like community saying like your belief system is causing me harm when you are in a deep um when you identify with this thing like our identity is so um fundamental so when your very identity is being called into question as to as that it's harming people like this is something i'm thinking about right now being a person who's in a white body like um that can seem like arbitrary like i just so happen to be in this body but this color of skin gives me access to certain privileges and powers that then um harm other people and so like and it's not that you are harming them and it's not that you caused it but you do benefit from it and just yeah and that's the thing just being aware and going back to the religious angle here of course no one is suggesting all christians believe the same stuff do that harm inflict that harm on others but 
realizing that, oh, my religion has been the cause of pain for so many other people in the past, still happening today. Um, I think being aware of that and acknowledging that goes a long way. And then making sure that the stuff you are doing today is not making that problem worse. And I think that's really where the problem lies, because a lot of people might be fully aware that their religion has caused harm, but they genuinely believe that the things they are doing now fly in the face of that, that they are not part of the problem anymore. And it's like, oh, buddy, no, you are absolutely still part of the problem. Like, talk to a woman in your church, maybe, and see maybe. what that's like. And the thing is, they've they've trained a, a lot of churches, not all. A lot of churches have kind of trained people to think like, no, 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 we're not hurting people. We love them. The way we show love is in this way that totally hurts those other people. And so you don't think you're doing anything wrong until, and this is where the deconstruction bit helps, until you talk to someone who left because of all that stuff. Yeah. And they're willing to to admit, like, nope, the church is what pushed me out. I didn't want to leave. They didn't want me there. They made it pretty clear. Um, I I'm I know this is a tangent, but it's so infuriating when you hear people saying homophobic, transphobic, racist stuff, but their answer is that. No, there's no hate involved. I am saying I am doing these things out of love. It's like, do you even know what that sounds like to everyone outside the bubble? And it's frustrating. I mean, honestly, if you're looking for social media engagement, I think one of the most interesting things is literally, here is something a pastor said, did. I'm not taking it out of context. Here is the exact thing. Here's the clip. Boom. I Sometimes I just put it out there. And people are shocked that someone would actually say these things, but it's not me misinterpreting them. It's not me purposely taking it out of context. Like these are kind of standard, sometimes these are standard beliefs in a lot of conservative churches and people are shocked to learn that. Yeah, that they are part and parcel of a murderous, harmful commerce. And forgive me if this is too personal a question, but do you happen to like um, pineapple on pizza? I, because I'm an atheist, I could say I'm totally fine with it. And no one's going to come after me for that. It is blasphemous. I know. Well, I mean, I feel like it's kind of like that. It's the same thing. Like pop open a coconut LaCroix and you'll find out who your friends (laughs) are because there are real controversial (laughs) menu items that seem to really rile people up. No, that brings me to a question of like, why do you think that modern day American Christians are so devoted to a system that's about blood sacrifice at the end of the day. I mean, these are like Iron Age and Bronze Age tribal traditions. And I know that we're really dedicated to like that dualistic thinking that us and them mentality that just really seems to keep us all suffering at an alarming rate. But like, what do you think it is? Is it just familiarity? Like we grew up in Sunday school. Like what's with this devotion to somebody has to die for forgiveness to take place something can be washed in blood yeah it's the the familiarity is a big part of it the tradition is a big part of it the fact that a lot of religious people a lot of christians would hear the comment you made about it's all based in like a blood sacrifice and think what that doesn't describe my beliefs um because they're so used to it that it doesn't strike them as weird it's only when you look at it from a kind of outsider perspective that it starts acting weird and the funny thing is if you described religious beliefs uh traditional evangelical beliefs catholicism if you started describing those beliefs and you had never heard them before the idea that you know a communion wafer is literally 
the body of Jesus and that when you put it in your mouth, like, nope, that's actually his body, which is the Catholic belief. When you try to explain the concept of hell and who suffers and faith alone, it doesn't matter how good of a person you are. Anne Frank right now is burning because she didn't accept Jesus. That is an evangelical belief that still holds true. When you put it outside the scope of church and just say, would you believe this stuff? Uh, Or would you think this is a good religion? It's a good belief. I think a lot of people would be horrified by it. But when you, the thing, to answer your question, why is this stuff so powerful? It's packaged really, really well. I mean, I've been, I've been to a lot of these churches, sometimes for an experiment, just like I want to know what they teach firsthand at some of these places. So I've been to mega churches. I've been to, you know, black churches on the south side of Chicago. I've been to living room churches that were just starting out. Um, But the thing about it is, in a lot of these places, the ones that are more successful, especially, they really do a good is the wrong word. They really do a successful job of convincing people why they want to be a part of the fold, why they want to come back week after week. If you allow them to, they will take over your life. And I mean that not necessarily in a bad way, but like you will find your friend group places to volunteer, your social safety net, all that stuff. You're sick, you lose a job, they will take care of you. And there is no good secular replacement for a lot of that stuff. And so I've tried to make this point to atheists too, which is you just trying to argue logic as a way to get people to stop believing in God isn't going to work because a lot of people don't go to church because they necessarily believe 100% of the things coming from the pulpit. They go because this is where their life is at. And if you don't have a way for them to make up for the stuff they would be losing if they left that church, they're not going to leave that church. I mean, for a lot of people, especially people of color, Like trying to use the, I guess, Richard Dawkins approach, if you read one of his books, it's just not going to work because you are asking them not just to stop believing in God, but in a lot of ways, turn your back on your family, turn your back on your culture, give up on a lot of the things that have been a part of your history. Um, That is a much harder ask. And the thing is, why are people so drawn to a lot of those churches? It's because it's so much more than just a set of beliefs. And they're really good at making you think that you need all of this to be not just a good... Jesus is a very good glue that binds people together. But obviously, what a church looks like in practice is different across the board. But there's a reason a lot of people want to go back week after week. And it's not because of their beliefs. That's the thing. So what's been interesting is, like, consider the pandemic, for example, when it became a lot harder to see people in public and to hang out every week and gather uh, in one place, I think there were a lot of people who realized, you know what? I can handle not going to a physical space once a week or twice a week for church, and my life is not fundamentally worse off. Or I found substitutes, whether it's some other group that meets regularly. Like, they found ways to make up for that stuff, and that's ultimately a bad thing for churches when you realize, oh, This place doesn't have everything I need. I can find, you know, alternatives in other places. That's like the thing church doesn't want you to have. What happens when you have religious doubts? I mean, I know this is going back a couple of decades, but I think, you know, you know what website probably turned more people into atheists than anything else? Take a wild guess. 
this is purely anecdotal. This is just my answer. But what website do you think converted more people than anyone else? Um, Pornhub? Close. I would argue Google because for the first time, all those questions you had in Sunday school and you we were told by your parents, maybe you got to ask the pastor, yeah, you got to ask the priest yeah. or something like that. And they would just tell you, just have faith yeah. or stop, stop questioning. All of a sudden, there was a safe way to ask your questions yeah. and see realistic answers yeah. in a way that maybe hopefully made some sense. And it's like, oh, all of a sudden you were getting answers to things that you thought only certain people had answers to. Turns out they didn't. And that's a death blow for a lot of churches. When you realize if you're looking for friendship, community among strangers who share a bond, turns out religion isn't the only game in town. Maybe it's a meetup group. Maybe it's uh, a gr- maybe it's politics for some people, you know, um, some activism of sorts that really binds strangers together because they're working toward a bigger cause. That gives people a lot of inspiration and camaraderie and all that. And again, when you realize church isn't the only game in town, all of a sudden religion starts losing some power too. So one of the trends we've been seeing for a long time now is religious participation is going down. Yeah. Um, young people have less of a need for church, maybe because not only do they have alternatives that we didn't have in generations past, but they've also seen firsthand the harm that religion can cause in certain situations and the cover-ups and the scandals and all that stuff. It's all front and center and you can't hide from it anymore. So, um, you know, the question is, do we have, is, is that a good change? I would like to think it is, but, um, there's, I guess there's one loss of, there aren't as many spaces anymore where strangers just kind of get together. Yeah. Uh, and I do think church provides that for a lot of people. Yeah. Births, weddings, funerals, right? like religion kind of cornered the market on yeah. life events. And, and you mark the passages yeah. of your life a lot of times through religion. So when you don't have that, and by the way, I have seen atheists try to replicate some of that stuff. There, uh, there are secular, uh, humanists who perform wedding ceremonies there are humanist funerals there are like birth rituals a rituals may be too heavy a word but there are things that you could do as a non-religious person but again they have not taken off these are not widespread things but that's the thing religion is really good at helping you have those milestones in yeah. your life whether it's a bar mitzvah whether it's a wedding a funeral whatever um and until you can replicate that Church still has this purpose for a lot of people who may not believe in a lot of the stuff being said. Or until you get comfortable with the mysteries of how probably most of this is uh, unanswerable, but it's so convenient if you have a system that's like, I'll give you all the answers and here's what you say at a funeral and here's how it makes it okay and all that. That's really what atheism is. It's that comfort of the phrase, I don't know. Yeah. And I'm not going to know. And you know what? That's okay. You're not going to have the answers to everything. And just being okay with that or accepting that in some way, that there are some things we'll try to poke at and try to find answers to. Um, and maybe we will learn stuff. This is like talking about the satellite imagery and those big telescopes out there. Like maybe we'll get closer to some of these answers, but there are a lot of big things we will never know the answers to. Religion gives you answers. Yeah. There is some value in having the wrong answers, but they're answers. And being okay with just saying, you know what? I don't know. That's a big part of what atheism is. Well, one other thing too, I feel like is when you said Google, it made me think that like, you're right. Uh, some people just go to church and it's a nice thing in their life, but there 
the type of church I grew up in is that this church wanted no less than all of our lives. Like sure. this is where we would have our community. This is where we would seek our financial advice. This is where we would like, <laughs> there's all these different ministries in the church, your entire yeah. community, your everything. But like, but it, when you said Google and we were talking about like, when I was a part of that community before I had a phone, like I just didn't, ha it was the only information I had. So it right. all made sense to me. And you're right with like the familiarity in terms of like the first time I started to hear specificity in terms of Mormonism or Hinduism or any of these other ones, I'm like, that's bananas. Right. But I'm, cause I'm like, wait, it has an elephant head or there's magic underpants. And like, but then they would probably say the exact same thing about like things that to me sound like we've almost because we've turned them into cute kids picture books and because it was part of my Sunday school. But if I'm honest, Hemant, like I always and even in Sunday school and stuff and like my the children's ministry I grew up in and everything, even though I was like told like there were two animals, two by two going right. on the ark and they give you the happy part of the story. But I was like, but what about all the screaming people clinging to the boat and begging for their lives and like bodies everywhere right. and mass genocide of the entire planet? Or they like, always overlook the genocide. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I know what I'm going to title this episode, but um. <laughs> But I feel like once I got a phone, like social media, all of a sudden I just was exposed to all these people having all these other ideas and feelings about it. And that like really accelerated what I was already really like questioning things just by nature of my personality or well, I don't know, my Zodiac sign. I don't know. But like then when I got more information and access to other people who had different ideas, then it just feels like it's accelerating it. And, and like, I think there are probably so many things where either you're just familiar with the concepts. So it doesn't sound bad to you or you've just been, or like sometimes we just believe that we're what we're told. I spent a long time being like, Oh, um, you know, the cops are the good guys and mm. like late stage capitalism is the best <laughs> form of economic, like, Oh, unchecked, unchecked growth is, is also called cancer, but you can also call it capitalism, you know? And so, <laughs> but I, I guess, um, there's nothing scarier in a, in a church than like a kid with a phone while for the pastor, right? Like you, that's the thing. Exposure to more information is something most pastors, preachers do not want. And that's the thing you see, there are arguments we are having in our society right now about whether certain books should be censored, whether yeah. kids should be exposed to something or another. And the flip side of that is I'm not afraid of kids learning more stuff because none of that would, you know, none of that would violate my principles. None of that's going to break the things I have tried to build my life on. I'm not afraid of it. But the people who want to censor stuff, whether it's a pastor saying, don't look up what critics are saying about this church or this faith. Don't read those books by those people who say our religion is wrong. Don't read about books with gay characters or trans characters or whatever, like you would think if they were really confident in their beliefs, they would not be afraid of any of those things. Because of course, at the end of the day, you're right. So what's going to happen if you learn about more stuff? Nothing, but they're not there. It's always like, no, 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 stay away from that material. You shouldn't watch this sort of movie or listen to this sort of music, or you shouldn't experience these sort of things because they're genuinely afraid that you might learn more or like it or realize that there's a world outside the bubble that is actually pretty damn nice. And it could be nice. And like, I don't know. I feel like in my life, I'm not afraid of that stuff. I can be exposed to it all. I want my kids to read the Bible when they're old enough to make some sense of it because it doesn't scare me. I want to have those conversations. Huh. Wow. I can honestly say the number one thing that turned me away from my devotion to God was actually reading the Bible and discovering what was in there. And I think going back to what you're doing, 
open, keeping your eyes open and your mind open and just being able to ask questions about this stuff, that's the valuable thing you could be doing. Because at the end of the day, I do not care what your label is. I don't care if you agree with me about the God question or not. Um, and there's no one's asking you to choose a label. There's no expiration date on when you need to pick one by. The thing that I think is important is that people just keep being willing to challenge themselves, to ask those questions. Um, I, I mentioned Google it could be a scary website for religion. But the thing is, as we all know, Google doesn't have like the right answer. It just has a whole bunch of answers. But again, the more you read, the more you learn about it, hopefully you're steered in a direction that just makes sense to you and that new information isn't going to, um, you know, the more you learn about stuff, the less new in, you're scared of new information getting in the way of that. And if it does, great. That means you're closer to being right. That's a good thing. So, you know, the more you ask questions, the more information you seek out, I think at the end of the day, that's a good thing. Yeah. If, if knowledge is power, then it stands to reason that if we're discouraging people from gaining knowledge, we're attempting to disempower them. Yeah. I mean, I will give a lot of credit to Christian apologists who I think are wrong about a lot of things, but at least their whole thing is, I think you should be asking the questions and I think our religion provides all the answers. I mean, again, we could debate how good those answers are, but there is some value in saying, I'm not afraid of what the facts are. I'm not afraid of what you bring to me because I think I have the right answers to it. Um, that's a lot better than the people, uh, maybe this is somewhat stereotypical, but the ones who say like, just have faith, stop asking those questions, just trust in God, trust in whoever the priest is or whatever. That's the sort of answer that will push you away from church all the time. And, and speaking of being pushed away, like um, from the very beginning, evidently with the story with Lucifer, we know what happens uh, when you question um, absolute authority. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> I don't think you ever told me what label you identify with or what your beliefs are. I'm curious if you use any of those labels. Oh, I think um, right now I'm in a phase where I just say, um, I don't know. That's a good answer. Well, that was me, Holly Laurent, playing De Levant, which I have a really good time doing. And I also have to thank the lovely Hemant Mehta, a brilliant YouTube creator, writer, activist, and podcaster who was gracious enough to come on as himself. Check out his great work in the Friendly Atheist podcast and the Friendly Atheist on Substack. Follow him at Hemant Mehta. <laughs>